0: Father in heaven, (coughs) we bless your name, Lord, and come to you in the name, and because of Jesus, we can come to you boldly, and uh, we come to your throne as weak and needy, but Lord, we come praising you for you are strong, and everything we have in you, you provide for us, and uh, we are so grateful for all your blessings. We as i was driving in this morning just reflecting uh, on the beautiful maple trees that these leaves are dying and it reminds me of you because how it's amazing how something that's dying can be so beautiful lord your your death while the most horrendous horrible thing that ever occurred it's also the most beautiful thing you are beautiful lord and lord as we come into this hour and the next hour to hear your word and worship you we pray that you would go with come be with us and uh, lord help this servant of yours to uh, decrease and that you would increase as we look at your glorious word this morning give us eyes to see and ears to hear it we pray all this in the strong name of christ amen all right so we have been studying romans and today we come to chapter four Um, As you recall, this thesis statement was um, Paul in his opening chapter, uh, verses 16 and 17 are are commonly called the thesis chapter of Romans, uh, where he talks about, I am not ashamed. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it it being the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And just a quick review, in case you haven't been here for the previous, we, in Romans, we, we, uh, just looking at chapter 1, you know, Paul, go, where that thesis is, he he says it's to all of this he's writing to bring us about to the obedience of faith. That's one of the goals. And he talked about how the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. We're all without excuse. And you see that phrase, that one of the saddest phrases in all the Bible, he gave them up, um, repeating in chapter 1 those that uh, resist and suppress that truth. And and primarily in chapter 1, he's talking to the Gentiles. Then he turns and flips it on the the self-righteous Jews who are listening to that and probably feeling very sanctimonious. And he says, you have no excuse. In chapter 2, verse 4 is a good summary. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it was meant to lead you to repentance? And he goes on to tell how the you think you're good because you're a good Jew, but you're just as guilty, if not more so, because um, you have the light and you still disobey the law, Torah. And then he, in chapter three, first half, he kind of nails everybody. The the ground is level at the cross, as we say. And he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And um, we, it's like we have copperhead breath. The venom of ass is on your lips. Uh, you're all, every, we, we all should just shut our mouth. We have nothing to offer God. And so then last week, that brought us to last week when he says, but now the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. Um. Apart from the law, and even though the prophets bear witness to it, and we talked about how uh, of that great exchange, and so that was the hinge where Paul's you know, shifting from the depravity of man, our utter radical corruption of, of every person, to the glorious gospel. So the theme last week was justification by faith alone, and, uh, Paul, uh, you know, I just caught myself saying, um, you know, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta get over that. When I was in Toastmasters many years ago, just, I was the um master and they set up a bucket for me with marble. Every time I'd say, um, the, the guy in the back would drop a marble in it. And it's like every five seconds there would be this marble drop. It's very distracting, but it, I need to get that back, but that would be distracting, so I'm not, but anyway. So men and women can be justified <clears throat> before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, apart from the law of Moses. In other words, apart from anything they're doing, anything, any good works or their own striving. This teaching is was, was so hard for the Jews, and it's very hard for us. Uh, Today, because it can, it is offensive. Someone who has strived to be good and takes pride on their moral, upstanding behaviors do not respond very well to the idea that all their good behaving and good works are not appreciated. Let alone that they don't count for anything. Which, what Paul is saying, you know, all my efforts come to nothing. I've been careful to do everything right all my life, and I've lived a good, high moral code. Um, and, and God won't appreciate that. It can be very offensive, and humbling. And and yet, somebody who hasn't been good like me uh, gets into heaven. Um, and you know, I've towed my, towed the line all my life. And so, this insistence with the law was a Jewish thing, but it's our thing too. It's our default mode that we want. We feel like we have to have something to do with it, and um, so it's a hard teaching, but Paul, you know, we, we talked about justification. Paul could have just jumped to chapter 5 and told us about all the benefits of justification, but he doesn't. In chapter 4, instead, what he does is he wants to answer his critics, and no doubt Paul had heard in the synagogues stuff like, you know, Paul, this new gospel is contrary to everything We've ever been hearing all our life. It's a denial of what we've been teaching, uh, what we've been hearing, the, being taught from the scripture. And then it, it's as though in chapter 4, Paul says, oh, really? So let's, let's go back and look at those scriptures. So uh, let's do that now as we look at Romans 4, chapter, chapter 1. We're going to go, first I'll read the, the full um, passage Before I read it, um, do y'all remember Sesame Street? Do you remember that on Sesame Street, they would uh, usually have this? Today's program is brought to you by the letter Z or whatever. Pardon me? Number three? Oh, and the number three, yes. Well, today, number four. We're in chapter four rows. But if, if we were, we were going to do that today, today's lesson in chapter 4 is brought to you by the letter L. L for lechizomai, which is the Greek word for imputation. We're going to talk about imputation ad nauseum today. In fact, we will see that word, the, that's the Greek word for imputed, we will see it in, chapter, in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, 9, 10, 11. And even next week's passage, verses 22, 23, and 24. So, chapter four is just uh, rich with lechidzami. And of course, that means credited or counted, as we went through last week. That's uh, the definition, oh, by the way, is in your handout. And if uh, you should have it on the back of the page, that definition, which um, we went over last week as well. And you will recall there are three imputations of the gospel. I reprinted it here this week because it is the essence of the gospel. You've got the first one where, which is really Romans 5, where God imputes uh, the sin of Adam because he was our federal head. We are all infected, as it were, with Adam's sin and Adam's false sin. We all, we have. That's the first imputation. And then the next two are the gospel, basically, the great exchange. Our sin was imputed or credited to Christ. He took on our sin, like in Isaiah 55, for he bore our iniquities. And then the second imputation is the other half of the gospel, where not only was our sin imputed to Christ, his righteousness, his record was imputed to us. So we're going to go over... um, those things again today. Repetition is the mother of uh, learning, and so this may sound like old stuff, but Paul is repeating it for a reason. It's so important. He repeats it. So let's let's now read God's Word in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works... He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, and he quotes from Psalm 32, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying, again, the repetition, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal, of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also, who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So that ends the reading of God's word. Let's look at it verse by verse now. Paul again is making his case that all are justified by faith alone by using Abraham as his example. And why did he use Abraham? Well, Abraham, the father of the faith, and it was the paradigm example for Jews. In fact, You know, you recall in um, John's gospel, the Jews cried out to, or, or, you know, to um, Jesus. They said, we have Abraham as our father. They took, they associated their status with Abraham. So um, in essence, Paul here says, well, let's, let's talk about Abraham. And so in this first few verses... Paul is going to answer the three questions he raised at the end of chapter 3. Romans, the first one, Romans 3.27, he asks, what about boasting? And of course, he says it's excluded. And then, um, so verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4 address that question using his paradigm example here, Abraham, as the example. So, verse 1, what then? In other words, it can be translated, therefore, referencing everything he said in the past, in the previous chapter, shall we say, about, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. I love that word, discovered. Abraham, as, since he was esteemed most notable, and the Jews extolled him, he's using him, and he was the forefather according to the flesh, Paul looks at him as an example of what he's been talking about, how a person is justified by faith and not by works. And in verse 2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, in other words, by his own performance, what Paul does here is he immediately sets forth the antithesis, i.e. the wrong answer. He, he says um, if, if he was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. We can fool each other, but we can't fool God. If our right standing before God was because of obedience, our obedience, we would indeed have a reason to boast. But we don't. And and even Abraham, this would have been kind of foreign to the Jewish ears, and it's foreign to us. Abraham didn't have anything to boast about. Paul's second reason um, is he appeals to Scripture, which is the final court of appeal. What does Scripture say? I think it's interesting. He doesn't say Scriptures, he says Scripture. In verse 3, he says, What does the Scripture say? And I love the way the King James Version does it. He says, What what saith Scripture? The Scripture. And, of course, this is a, a very good question we should always ask with anything. The prevailing view for most Americans today is that in the Old Testament, God saved people differently than they, he does today. In the Old Testament, it's viewed as the age of law. And in the New Testament, it, the age of grace. Uh, God's, in other words, most people today, including a lot of Christians, unfortunately, will think that our salvation, the salvation of Jews, Old Testament folks, and us are different. And Paul refutes that notion here by using Abraham as his example. And he quotes Genesis 15. uh, In verse 6 it says, and he quotes it in the scripture here, in, um, in verse... Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness in other words he put his complete trust in God and his word and God counted that as righteous uh, now any Jew back then would have known this verse like we know John three sixteen. it wasn't unfamiliar to the Jews this was a verse that they were very familiar with so he's appealing to to them on that basis. Paul is essentially showing them that he didn't make this up. Faith has always been the means of salvation. It was then, it still is. That's the way, the only way to receive God's favor is through faith. There's nothing mentioned in, in uh, Genesis, or uh, Paul doesn't mention it, of his working, his, his meritorious uh, his merit, or anything he did to be right before the Lord. There's no law-keeping, no circumcision mentioned. Um, It's strictly credited or accounted as righteous because he believed God. He had faith. Same with us. So, And we know Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. It was Abraham was putting his faith in Christ. There, there, is a, there was a prevailing notion or belief in those days for Jews that there was, uh, there was so much merit in the saints of the patriarchs, particularly Abraham, that it would overflow and carry over. In fact, that notion is uh, very much uh, a part of Roman Catholic thinking. They believe still today and certainly during the Reformation that there was enough um, merit that, uh, like for example, Mother Teresa very that, that is revered and Anselm and uh, so many of the great uh, uh, Catholic leaders of the faith, they were so godly and they had so much merit that it could carry over to them or us, and Paul kind of refutes that notion here. Um, if if there was merit for them and and that's the way they thought that's the way often we think and certainly the Catholic Church does and that idea is alive and well today the uh, um, notion of that is destroyed by Paul he says it's not our merit it's not our work in verse 4 he says now to the one who works that is the moralist the self-righteous those laboring to bring, to find acceptance with God by the, what they do, their own actions. Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So, for example, um, I'm glad you're here, Scott. I'm, I was going to use you as an example. Last um, to this verse reminds me of um, my time with you at, at your, last February or January through April, I took a part-time job with Scott. He hired me to help during tax season. I wanted to make a little extra money. And um, so do you think that I was thinking, boy, all these hours I'm putting in, I sure do hope that Scott will give me a gift at the end of this. <laughs> of course not. Um, he was obliged to pay me. He was obligated. I, I put in my hours. I expect a paycheck. Um, so that's the idea here and and that would be in contrast to at the end of my little stint there after April 15th of course um, there was an office staff celebratory party at the steakhouse and he invited graciously invited me to go have a steak which I I think I got chicken but anyway um, (laughs) that was not he was not obligated to do that. But it was his gift. It was a very gracious gift. So that's the idea here in verse four uh, when Paul when pa says his wages aren't credited as a gift but as an obligation. And uh, it's something that God freely did, like Scott freely uh, gave. He wasn't obligated to do it. However, in verse five, however, to the one who does not work, that is the one that who relies on his own supposed goodness and strivings, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. And it's, as a review from last week, justified means to declare unrighteous, or count, or reckon. My mother always used the word reckon, uh, a legal term, not meaning not guilty, you're acquitted. For those who trust God, who justifies the ungodly or as I like to quote the NIV version those that justify the wicked their faith is credited as righteousness well that's what Abraham was ungodly right so let me stop here and maybe draw y'all in who can tell me an example maybe of how Abraham was ungodly Oh, do we have the mic, David? Where's David? Um, talk loud. <coughs> who, who was?
1: He, he said his wife Sarah was really his sister. He lied to protect his hide.
0: Yes, yes. He um, that whole thing with Sarah. He he told uh, Pharaoh, uh, or he said to Sarah, you know, tell him you're, I'm your sister to protect his own hide. Right. Um, that's a great example selfishness in fact the uh, in in Genesis 12 he said say you're my sister so it'll go well with me and my life would be spared and and of course how did Pharaoh respond to that when he found out he was not uh, she was not his sister he was he, he didn't like that what he was mad what did he say to Abraham Yeah, hey, why did you do this to me? Um, and then uh, he, he gave him gifts, so uh, and his life was spared. Any other examples of where Abraham was ungodly? There are a bunch of them. He was an idolatry, but... Well, yeah, he, he, he was an ungodly man. He came from an ungodly country. He was a moon worshiper out in Ur. Absolutely, that, he was an idolater, as we Marshall. all are. Any other examples of why he, he uh, caved in to Sarah when she said, uh, here, take my, my maidservant, Hagar, and, and that's how we're going to have a son. Yes. We, in other words, she wasn't trusting God, so he went along with that and said, okay, that's the plan. you got it. Yes. Um, that always tickles me. I mean, it would be like Dorothy saying, you know, we can't conceive, why don't you go into this young, beautiful, uh, why, don't, why don't you have sex with him? Or, and Abraham, you know, when he says, okay, uh, it's very faithless. I mean, God could have right there said, you know what, I'm, I'm done with you. But he didn't. But he, that was another great example. Any others? I think he did the sister thing twice. Yes. That's what I was fishing for. Um, so what was the other one? Who was that with? What king was that with?
1: That was
0: with, um,
1: wasn't it Abimelech? One of the kings of one of the lesser uh, uh, countries, I think. he. That's exactly Abimelech. right, Cindy. Abimelech. And, it, and, and as a matter of fact, on that time, God was so mad he shut up all the wombs of Abimelech's women in his little kingdom, wherever that was, because uh, they couldn't conceive either. So
0: that's right. <laughs> he, he, uh, and uh, when Abimelech found out found out about it, just kind of like um, Pharaoh, what was his response? Oh, he was ticked off for sure. <laughs> yes, he was ticked off. But he and he said. What is this that you have done? It was, you know, that, that phrase, what is this you have done? We've heard that a lot in Scripture. It was the first thing that God said to Adam. What is this that you have done? He, he was, it was a great example of even the pagan kings behaved better than the patriarch. In fact, with Abimelech, um, he was told that this man's a prophet of God. And so, you know, Abraham, Ab- Abimelech is thinking, gee, this man's a prophet of God, and he's doing this nonsense and this foolishness. I mean, even the pagan kings were more righteous than Abraham, in a sense, you might say. So, And yet, God kept kept saying, um, like in chapter 15 of uh, Genesis, verse 6, it said, After the word of the Lord came to him. And we see that phrase a lot. It's like God was forbearing or patient with Abraham. And, and he kept giving the word over and over until finally Abraham believed it. He had to hear the word of God. It's the same with us. And Abraham, um, to quote Mike Horton, one of my favorite theologians. By the way, um, I, everything I share, I steal from somebody else. It's not... I, Somebody was asking me, what are your sources for all this? And I started to bring my stack of uh, (laughs) Romans commentaries. And uh, I I, I pull from all over the place. I just love... Dorothy makes fun of me because when I go to the beach, instead of out on the beach with a novel, I'm reading a systematic theology or or, or a commentary on Romans. She says, you know, get a life. Get something. You need to be more well-rounded. And I said, honey, it's just like what I like to do. But anyway... um, so anyway, Mike Horton says, he got it, he got it, he got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I don't got it. And, and that's the way it is sometimes with us until we, we, we got to hear the gospel over and over. And that was the case with Abraham. Finally, he, um, after the promise, God said, you will have a son uh, in ver- there in chapter 15, and your offspring will be like the stars, unable to count them. And that's where the famous verse that Paul's referring to, and God counted it, to him as righteousness, and again, any Jew would be familiar with that passage uh, that Paul's citing here. And by the way, not only that, but um, the law is what the the Pharisees and uh, what we it's our default mode. The law hadn't been would not be given until much much later, four hundred years later. So that Paul doesn't argue it here and. Romans 4 but he does in chapter 3 of Galatians. In fact if you want to turn there uh, it's a lot of talk about Abraham here also. Uh, Picking up in verse of chapter 3 your heading of the whole chapter is by faith or by works of the law question mark. In in verse 10 it says for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written curse be everyone who does not abide for all the things written in this book of the law. We got to keep them all or you're Like James says, uh if you don't if one one sin will keep you out of heaven, even a small one. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Um the righteous shall live by faith. He he can he says he just can't not say that. In almost every passage he every letter he writes where it's written cursed is everyone hung on a tree that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then he goes on to say, uh, he keeps going. But it's also there in Galatians where Paul argues this. Now back to Romans 4. So Paul is basically um, appealing to the the Jews in his day, you need to take off your Moses glasses and put on your Abraham glasses because Abraham's was not the, the, the message of Abraham or the, uh, that covenant was not, um, annulled by Moses. It just, it was stapled onto it. And it's really the, the first and, um, it's, it's the grace covenant, not the law covenant that we look to for our salvation. Now, now, even even though Jewish law said one of the things in the law was that um, by the mouth of two witnesses everything should be established. So here in, the, in verse six he gives a second witness. He's appealed to Abraham. Now he's going to appeal. He's going to make his argument for David. The same argument. So you know he could not have chosen two better examples for the Jews: Abraham, the paradigm. Uh, patriarch and then David, the most glorious king of israel and and of course, David also was a great example of how God justifies the wicked, and of course, we know his wickedness i 'd say murder's a wicked thing to do, uh, as is adultery, and he did both and by the way, I, I often wonder in heaven when Uriah... I mean, if there was ever a a better, you know, an example of paradigm virtue, there's nothing said... Uriah is one of those that nothing bad is said about. I wonder in heaven if Uriah doesn't come up to David and say, you slept with my wife, you had me murdered, but I want you to know I've forgiven you for that. You know, that would be... You know, I, I know in heaven... They're probably, they're all glorifying God, how God worked all that to his glory. Uh, But Uriah got the shaft from David, uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a very amenable, uh, another amenable statement, Cindy. Amen. Uh, I like the way Neil used to put it. If he had a little camera up here, we'd fire him uh, because we to see the way he thinks. Same with us. If, 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 we'd, we'd have to step down as elders, we all would be laid low. So back to verse six. David says he's referring to David, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from, that is completely separate, from works. Blessed are those whose, and this is um, Psalm 32, I forget the verse, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, and that's as far as east is from the west, totally forgiven, whose sins are covered And that, you recall from last week, covered there is the word expiation, where God atones for, covers um, the sin. Verse 8, blessed is the one, continuing with the quote, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count, imputed, never impute against them, not to be remembered anymore. And these verses in David, of course, summarize again the great exchange where which can be also summarized in 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By the way, sorry for you guys over here. Dorothy said, I asked her." so any critique from uh, last Sunday? She said, yeah, you know, you, you look totally ahead and to the right. You never gave these folks any eye contact, so <laughs> forgive me. Um, for not looking at you so this is a verse that second corinthians five twenty one I think every Christian should memorize he made him he he God made him Jesus to be sin, so that in him we we become the righteousness of god that is the that is verse kind of is just a great verse that sums up the great exchange we get his it, it's just the, the wonderful um, wonderful truth of the gospel. You know, you've heard the saying, um, if you want to learn something, teach it. This week, I'm, I even mentioned to Dorothy, this, just preparing for this has given me such a lightness of spirit. Um, th- th- it's just so glorious. I'm kind of a, uh, you know, we have this, the four animal thing with personality, the otter and so forth. Well, I, I always had the uh, teaching of the personality types as the four bloods, the choleric, melancholy, um, sanguine, and I forget the other one. But I'm a melancholy. Um, I'm, I'm a, by disposition, I'm a guy that says that the, uh, there's always a cloud behind the silver lining kind of guy. <laughs> but th- just studying this, uh, just prepare for this, it's just given me a lightness of spirit. God's word in this passage is just so, so rich. So back to the scriptures here. The great exchange, another example of where we see it is in our hymns. I love that hymn that we sing. uh, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are my glorious dress. Miss flaming worlds in these arrays. With joy I shall lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that Great day for who ought to my charge shall lay. In other words, who's, the accuser won't be there. I'm in the righteousness of Christ, fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Isn't that a great line? Um, I, you know, the whole EE thing, evangelism explosion, those questions, you know, what if you die and go to heaven and you stand before the gate and Gabriel or Peter or somebody or Christ is going to ask you, why should I let you in? You know, what would you say? And I, I used to sweat, I'm going to forget and say something really boneheaded and stupid like I was a good person or, you know, something like that. And this verse calculates what I hope I remember. If I have a wreck and I'm dying, I say, okay, his blood, your blood, your righteousness, your blood. I hope that will be my answer. Blood and righteousness of Christ. That's, that's, that's the answer that I hope we'll all give. All right, and so in verses, we're getting running on time here. I've got to get through this passage. In verses tw- 9 through 12, he goes into his circumcision argument. So Paul, I told you there are three questions at the end of three. Paul answers the second of these questions at the end of three. In verse 29, he asks, or is it God of the, God of Jews only, or is he not also of Gentiles? He argues that circumcision makes no difference. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. He's saying this over and over. Um, It was his faith. So that's why it's important for Paul to ask what he does in verse 10. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Before? And as Paul often does, he answers his rhetorical question briefly and bluntly in this case. It was not after, but before. Indeed, it was before. It's two chapters later that um, we see him circumcised, which was about 14 years before. Um, I mean, the circumcision came after. His, His crediting of righteousness was 14 years before. And he received circumcision as a sign or seal. Now, a sign points to something. It is not the thing. When you're on the road and you see Greensboro five miles this way, that's a sign. It's not Greensboro. Um, We confuse the thing signified with the thing often. Uh, In uh, Galatians 5, 6 and 7 applies here. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. I would still be married to Dorothy if I didn't have this ring. But, and it would, if I lost it, it would, I would be very distraught, not because of the value of the gold. I I, I don't know what, I don't even have any idea what it's worth, but because it's it's so meaningful to me, it connects me with, uh, it reminds me of, uh, it's just precious to me because of Dorothy, not because of the, $300 $300 or whatever it's worth. Oh, last night, just parenthetically, um, while I'm thinking about it, we were at a wedding. That's why I couldn't, we couldn't go to the um, Harvest Fest. And I'd never seen at the end of the wedding, it reminded me a lot, Jeannie and David, of your weddings, just so full of joy. But at the end of the, the ceremony, they, the, the pastor had talked a lot about the sign of the rings. And they played, I'd never heard this song, but it was, I thought it was so perfect. Uh, the song that "Here I Am, Baby, sign, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours." Stevie Wonder. Is that who wrote that? Wonder Stevie Wonder wrote that. Okay, I've forgotten the artist, but um, isn't that perfect for a wedding? Sign, sealed, delivered, I'm yours, and that's what this this sign that uh, circumcision was, and ba- our baptism is. So anyway, uh, I, back to the originally programmed teaching already in progress um so the signs and seals point us to christ the gospel they're not a sign of our faith or obedience and then he goes on to say in verse 11 of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised he's making his point paul is stretching that stressing that the righteousness is universally available to both jews and gentiles So then, he is the father, that is, the spiritual father of all who believe, who believe that have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be and forever credited to them. And he is then the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before him before he was crucified, the Messiah to come. So... He's just not giving examples uh, to, of the Jews who were saved. Um, the Gentiles, you know, might be feeling left out. You know, you're talking about Abraham. We, we may not know Abraham from squat. The, the Gentiles, he emphasizes that it's for him, all, them also. And uh, that they, Abraham had faith while he was still uncircumcised, just like they were. Okay, so, you know... Um, We've got a few minutes here, and uh, we have a ta- we talked about you know justification by faith was a um, really wasn't new, but Luther that, we reformed it. Uh, we going back to Scripture. Uh, it's a it's a teaching that was kind of resurrected in, in the um, 16th century, but you'll hear a lot of people talk about. Yeah, but James says, and I'll quote, um, well, let's turn, let's turn there and read it. Um, I think we, we should address this because it's uh, just like Paul often anticipates objections. As Christians, we'll hear this objection a lot, turn in James. Uh, if you turn to chapter 2, verses 14, I don't think I put that there, Booth. But if you have your Bibles, I'll read it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you believe? And he was called a friend of God. Now, this is the verse that they'll quote out of context. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's the verse that the Catholics and that will people, anybody who's arguing that your your good behavior is going to give you merit. That's the verse they quote, right? And if you take that verse out of context, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he goes on, in the same way Rahab the prostitute was justified by works when she received the messengers. And he, um, he goes on and on. So Luther got a lot of flack and got pounded with this passage. In fact, Luther kind of capitulated and said, uh, yeah, the James' epistle of straw. He later recanted or repented of that and, and said it was in the canon. Um, so... Somebody that quotes James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. How would you answer that? Where's the mic? Um, How would you answer that objection? Is it a contradiction? Faith is an intangible thing. You can't pin it down, whereas works are tangible. And so if you don't have the works, you can't really Give any credibility to someone say, "Well, I have faith," because they have to be. It has to be manifested in some way. Your faith has to have some sort of fruit or manifestation to be evident. Very good. Another amenable, um, Mr. Stephen.
2: I would uh, would say that it's. That a person that is justified by works
1: alone is not saved, but by faith alone you are saved.
0: Well, that's the very opposite of what he says in verse twenty-four, right? Yeah, but but yes, that's that's the um, tension there. Is how do we reconcile verse twenty-four of James with what Paul said, what you just quoted? Uh, this is one of many.
1: In, Okay. Uh, it's one of many instances where it's just absolutely essential to pay close and careful uh, attention to the use of language. Uh, Calvin's commentary on James makes, makes the point that uh, in, in refuting an argument, we may sometimes make the concession of allowing a use of language, which we don't actually agree with. In this case, to call it faith, it is such a concession He's not talking about, I mean, he's not talking about faith in the way that Paul is. He's addressing a different issue. So he's saying, in effect, well, you say you have faith, but you really don't. Uh, it's not faith. It's, it's, it's pretend faith. It's, it, uh, it's the faith of someone who, uh, and, and he's dealing with, the, James is dealing with, with uh, a Jewish mindset that's kind of antinomian. Uh, no, you don't really have faith. If you had faith, it would be manifest in works. So, uh, so uh, you know, again, you, I mean, b- both speaking of faith and speaking of being justified, it, you have to look at the context. You have to look at the use of language. It's just like, let's say, for instance, John's use of the word world. Well, there are something like seven different senses in which that word is used, I think, in John's gospel alone. So uh, it's it, they're different. James is James is dealing with the the, the the same mindset that you find in Jeremiah, where it's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Okay, we're we're protected. I I, I said the prayer. I went down front. I'm protected. Uh, that's not faith.
0: Excellent, sir Kevin. Going to get you some work out here, David.
2: Yes. Um, I hear an overlap with covenant theology a little bit and I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson's Things Unseen the other day. I think it was Wednesday maybe, and he was talking going back to Genesis three, fifteen and sixteen, where God promises that he will he will do the work of salvation. I'm 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 connecting a whole lot of things there from three sixteen. But the point is he will do these things and I see when you look and he makes the covenant with Abraham and he makes the covenant with Moses and knows he will save these people and one thing he made the point was is that that we see these commandments and the things in, in the uh, Exodus, Leviticus, in the law that we're in. And even we see the Beatitudes and the, we look in Philippians, all these things that we we're to do, they're in the context of the relationship with the people that God said he will, you know, establish these people. So when we see that he will do these things in that, in that true, active, promised tense of the word, he will do these things and based upon that that relationship of he will do those things, we live and he's giving us a, you know, if you have a house, you might want to take care of this and you might want to do these things. If you have this life, you might do these things. And it's a, it's guidance. And so when we look at faith and works, works is a manifestation or his guidance to do these works is based upon, I love you. I'm going to save you. I'm bringing that to faith in your heart. And these things you're going to do because you're connected to me, not you're going to be faithful because you're doing these works.
0: Yes, um, all of these are great comments. Um, Scott, augment them. So they're actually not our works to begin with. So Scripture
1: tells us that we persevere in the works that God has prepared beforehand that we would persevere in. So these works are an evidence of faith, just as the fruit of the spirit, in love, joy, peace, <clears throat> patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, <coughs> are all evidence that the
0: spirit of God is within us. Excellent. And I would throw in, um, just, Paul is, uh, James is writing before. Uh, this he re- His epistle was earlier, and we know though that James agreed with Paul at the in chapter fifteen at the famous uh, council, um, you know, with the Judaizers. And um, true authentic faith will always produce fruit, as you said, Doctor Olson. Um, so great comments. So that that should not be an objection. Um, and, and as we Note that it was taken very much out of context. In fact, as I was reading it, I think, thinking, I should have just read verse twenty-four, just the stark contrast before I put in context, because context of the passage just really just makes it clear.
1: Marshall, it also seems like uh, when in Ephesians, Paul's talking from an inward perspective of what's happening in the heart of explaining why it's by faith alone, but then James is talking from the outward perspective, uh, and, and so there has to be some outward manifestation. I know this is just basically re- recapitulating what other people have said, but the perspective of it is very interesting. If I look at it from my heart, it's only a work of faith. Right. But if I look at it from the outside, it has to be, there has to be some sort of indication
0: of what's happening on the inside. Good point. Yes? All right, um, I think did we get through the last verse? Okay, so next week uh, we're going. It, it was all I could do to resist going into the uh, last part of chapter fifteen of Genesis, where you know God separated the pieces, and 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 next week we're going to look at the promise. We can. We can um, we our faith should be in the promises of God. It's a glorious passage. I think DeWitt is gonna lead that. So that's where we'll be next week. Um, we have uh just a few minutes. So uh getting back to the old James uh what's his name that did the E Kennedy. Kennedy question. Uh what's the ticket? Uh does anybody want to share Regarding heaven, the requirements for admission. Who gets in and who doesn't? Anybody want to? All right, you're on the spot. Quick. You're in the elevator. Quick. Answer in, uh, quickly. How, how do you get in? I'm, I'm Peter. You're there, and I'm, I'm St. Peter. How do you get in? Well, why should I let you in? How would you answer? Somebody? Anybody else want to? You're on the spot now. It's quick. You've got to be quick. It's got to be ingrained in you. It's... is. Christ's righteousness that's what you'd say that's a good answer anybody else that's that's I'm being silly a little bit but I want that's the essence of these last the end of chapter three the all of the beginning what we've talked about in the last um, two lessons it's not your righteousness it's Christ's righteousness <laughs> yes. I sing that hymn every election day when I don't get what I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a lot. Like... yeah. Amen. All right. Well, let us um, now, as we'll have a little time for fellowship before we go to worship. Let me close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, Our hope is built on your righteousness, nothing else. Uh, Thank you that you were made to be sin and that in him uh, you you put on Jesus all the wrath of God for us, for us. Lord, what a glorious gospel. I pray that for each of my friends here and as I pray for myself that we would believe it, Uh, believe it so deeply that our hearts would overflow with gratitude and praise you. Uh, Lord, as we go now into worship in a few minutes, I pray that uh, you would go with us. I pray for everyone here and myself included, for those who are struggling. I pray that you would be their answer, that you would give hope to those who have no hope or feeling low. Um, For those that are suffering, I pray you'd be their healer. For those that are struggling with a relationship I pray that you would heal that and I pray most of all for those who feel they have sinned that they would run to you and run to you with um, belief that you um, your burdens are light your yoke is easy and your burdens are light and that you will know I was cast out any who do come to you in faith and that we can leave here today knowing that we have your righteousness and all that comes with that, uh, all the benefits of Christ. Go with us now, and um, we give thanks for this word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word, what you're like. Your goodness just explodes off these pages, and we praise you, and on heaven's blissful shore, your goodness, Lord, we will adore And we adore it now and we praise you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.